You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. I am your host, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. For this episode, I have a special treat for you all in the form of two guests I have come to know rather well. First of all, I'm joined by Joseph Crampton, coming to us from Mississippi, writing at Burkirkian, which you can find at burktokirk.substack.com. Also joining me from the state of Kansas is Bobby McPherson. Bobby is founder and CEO of the Reformed Conservative as well as Refcon Press. Both Bobby and Joseph are dear friends of mine, fellow members of a writing club we started a while back called Ingladii Veritas. We call it IGV for short. You'll hear me talk about it on the podcast from time to time. Also, the three of us happen to make up the board of directors for the Reformed Conservative, which we call TRC for short, which you will also hear me reference on this podcast. But without further ado, gentlemen, welcome. How are you doing this evening? I'm good. I've been a little under the weather. Um, job change plus uh, cold allergies, pink eye, but otherwise, God is good. Good, good, good. You two doubtless know there's been a lot in the news cycle here as of late. There was a shooting at a Christian school in Nashville, for instance, by a woman who identified as transgender, a woman who was identifying as a man who had attended that Christian school and apparently had a bit of a manifesto and a vendetta. There's talk of censorship on social media for conservatives who are posting Bible verses to Twitter and warning about a transgender day of violence and vengeance coming up this Saturday. We also see today that a Manhattan grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump on criminal charges. And so here's my first question to get us started. And I'll start with you, Joseph. What would your prescription be for the American church and American Christians in particular for works to read and study to understand better what's going on right now, culturally, socially, philosophically, politically, theologically, when there's so much in the news cycle, how do we convince people to read old books instead of just keeping up with uh, current events? What do you think? You know, that's that's a great question and um, not a softball question as I thought it might be just on general books and book recommendations. But look, we live in we live in confusing times. And I think if we if we look up to proper reformed or Christian thinkers who, who can not only get cut through the spin of the 24 hour news cycle that never seems to stop and is just constant doom scrolling on social media. Uh, if we look up to people like Oz Guinness, who is a, a, a PhD in, um, he's got, I think it's in social sciences from Oxford, or Carl Truman, who teaches at Grove City College, another British um, educated Christian man, um, both of whom are more or less reformed, but who are incredibly insightful and always biblically informed with their uh, cultural commentary. Um, or even people like Albert Moeller, uh, who I listen to on a regular basis, who is a little bit more controversial among the TRC crowd, um, or Robert P. George, who's a Catholic and not Reformed at all, but is another t- 
empowering intellect who, uh, who can help us to kind of navigate the crazy cultural um, waters that we swim in and live in. Um, but also to keep a clean sea breeze of the ages blowing through the mind. People like Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bovink, and Gronen von Prinzscher. Um, we don't need to reinvent the wheel, but we need to get our bearings on what we're dealing with and on how to navigate and respond as a Christian in challenging times. Yeah, that's right, Joseph. Uh, you're not going to necessarily have a uniformity of prescriptions and perspectives when you're talking about each of those guys. Uh, they're not all going to agree on everything. In fact, they're going to disagree about a, a fair number of things, but there's going to be a broad overlap. And I think that's one of the things that's really striking about conservative political philosophy, conservative theology. We don't always agree. And sometimes that's uh, a bit of a impression people have on the outside is almost this you know, if you've heard one conservative, you've heard them all. If you've read one conservative, you've read them all. Uh, there's this broad brush and ideological conformity that is expected. And you, you find this even when you just speak up on an issue. People who are not conservatives, who are not well-read on these things, who are not well-informed on these things, if they don't agree and if they're feeling a little bit threatened by what you are communicating, they will be quick to dismiss and say, ah, you you just watch Fox News too much. You just listen to talk radio too much. But really, that that's a large part of the reason why we should be reading conservative political commentary, conservative theological commentary, and social commentary is because we need to be better informed and, and not so homogenous when it comes to looking at these things from different angles. But you know, speaking of different perspectives, different angles, uh, Bobby, how would you answer that same question of – who we should be reading or what your prescription would be for the American church and American Christians. Yeah, well, um, hopefully I can do this uh, succinctly and not be all over the place. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind. Uh, I mean, obviously, I don't disagree with what Joseph's saying. Uh, I'm, I'm adding to it, um, maybe, you know, qualifying it my own flavor, perhaps. But um I mean, really, I feel like I'm almost just repeating what he's saying just in a different way. That's like, should I even say it? But um, I think, you know, you're asking about prescription. What prescription should do I want to give to the, those who are of a Christian audience? Um, I think one thing that we need, besides the question, of course, reading something from some time ago, is to read widely. Now, a, a man who is widely read is not the same thing as a man who is well-read, but you cannot be well-read if you are not widely read. And too many people I know either read nothing but philosophy or nothing but theology, uh, or uh, you know the, the, maybe they'll dabble a little bit in a few other things, but they're not really well read. I think that really is important in the way that you know when it comes to like a diet, um, eating a, an actual healthy diet. And, and it really it hit me just so much because you know I was very much steeped in philosophy, hugely because because I love it and I'm, I'm, I'm in, in a certain way I'm kind of good at it or I think I am but when I'm trying to wrestle with the question of okay how do the philosophers define what is man you guys remember that episode some time ago when I read imaginative literature the novels mm -hmm. and in the jungle book and they uh, the author Rudyard Kipling isn't it he, mm -hmm. he defines man in a way that is not even possible to do philosophically. 
Hmm. Man is more than just a philosopher. Well, let me put it this way. Edmund Burke, actually, I found this out recently. Edmund Burke actually was the very first to um, argue, or at least to argue in a way that went mainstream, that a cultivated and civilized man is not just a man who cultivates his reason, but a man who cultivates his imagination. Mm. So that means we need to, if it's true, then we need to do more than just philosophy and theology. You need to pick up novels, right? So uh, that's the first point I would make is that we need to be well-rounded and we all have a tendency to not be well-rounded. Then to the question, uh, and, and maybe this isn't even an explicit question, but it's one worth bringing up, to the question of why read old books? Well, Wes Callahan, who is a very popular name in our circles, and rightly so, he correctly pointed out perspective. You know, and how do you define perspective? I, I can't, I'm not sure that I can do that, but, uh, but there's something and I can try. Pers perspective is kind of like understanding. And understanding is definitely different than information. Uh, I mean, take, I, take, for example, the parables. Or take, for example, actually in the Old Testament, uh, you have a prophet going up to David for his sin, and he gives him a story. Now, the story is a fictional story about lamb and sheep and all of that. Um, of course, it's connected to a, it's an allegory. But he didn't give David new information that David didn't have. David had the right mm. information. He had no new information from this prophet. What he got was understanding because he refused to understand what he knew. And that's what Christianity and I believe a Christian worldview is supposed to be different than a non-Christian education is that at the end of the day, it's not that we have different information. It's that we actually are able to bring an understanding that others cannot bring to the table, right? And so what does that have to do with reading old books? Well, because incidentally, old books also bring an understanding in a way that is more than just information, and we need that. So, I mean, I could probably keep going, and if I do, I'll probably start stumbling all over myself, but those two points alone are worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And Joseph, did you have a thought to continue yeah, on? Yeah, I, I told you I found a killer quote, and I did not interject it regarding old books, um, but Alistair McGrath, the Christian philosopher and writer, recently wrote, and I quote, the reading of old books enables us to avoid becoming passive captives of the spirit of the age by keeping the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. C.S. Lewis said something very similar in, uh, in, in one of his essays that, that I've had friends reference like George Grant um, online. But um, that, that idea of not being captive to the 24-hour news cycle and whatever happens to be popular or thought by the, you know, the 2% of thought leaders and social critics and cultural commentators. Um, that's why we have to keep people like Abraham Kuyper and Drone von Prinzer and Herman Bovink and, and even Evan Burke and Russell Kirk. We, we don't need to read only new books, but we don't need to read only old books and be completely irrelevant uh, or, or, or somewhat irrelevant to what's going on. So I think your podcast, Garrett, actually does a good job of, of referencing both the old classic works and what's going on on the Twitter news cycle and Fox News and CNN as well. Well, thank you, Joseph. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I, I would relate it to my line of work. I work in automation and controls engineering. And one of the things that I like about automation is also one of the more challenging things. And that is that uh, there's an endless complexity to it 
just by virtue of all these different devices and systems and controllers that you can combine together to regulate processes. And everybody wants their process regulated a little bit differently. And you introduce one new device and all of a sudden you've got to reevaluate how is that going to behave with yeah, these others? What are the limitations? What are the variables? What are the constants? How do the variables affect our constants and our overall objective here? What are the costs, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't get one person who's an expert on every little aspect of automation and controls because it's a continually developing field of knowledge and a continually developing uh, career and profession. But what you typically do have is you've got teams of people who work together on these things. And this guy knows this piece pretty well. This guy knows this piece pretty well. And this guy knows this piece really well. And between them, they can bounce ideas off of each other. And sometimes you phone a friend, sometimes you call the manufacturer, sometimes you contact an expert who's not actually been working on this problem, but it's the forest for the trees sort of a deal where because they haven't been buried in it for weeks or months or years even, they come to it when you present what you have put together, they come to it with a fresh perspective and they say, ah, well, have you tried this? right? You you list off all the things that you've attempted or you've looked into and they say, well, did you look at this? And you say, oh, no, I, I didn't even think of that. That's a really simple thing. Thank you. Thank you very much. But you know, we need that with old books as well. Old books give us perspective. And that's one of the benefits of reading people who were alive a long time ago. They don't have a dog in this fight. They had their own fights. They didn't have maybe an idea of these things fleshing out in their particulars in the way that they have, but they had their own particulars. And sometimes if we read their particulars, it casts a new light on what it is that we're trying to grapple with. And we need that. We very much need that. And like, like Chesterton said, it's two heads are better than one, not because either one of them is, is perfect or infallible, but because they rarely go wrong in the same direction. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. And so we, we need another perspective. Um, or fresh eyes just to look at the problem because no two people, individuals are exactly the same or think exactly the same or have exactly the same experiences. Um, so we can draw on the wells that each of us can contribute to the problem. Well, I mean, we could quite frankly list, I mean, literally dozens of reasons why we should be reading old books to understand and shed light on our current conversation. Uh, I mean, one thing that we haven't mentioned, uh, I, I don't want to create this huge bullet list because that wouldn't be very fun. And I don't know that I would do a great job anyways without really sitting down and thinking about it. But uh, I mean, in most cases, what we have going on now is because of a conversation that went on before. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you asked, you know, for example, um, uh, something about specifically what we I might recommend that we study uh, to understand our current context. And one of those definitely, hands down, is a book by Yuval Levine, and maybe I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but uh, it's The Great Debate, The Birth of the Left and the Right in America and also in England. And it's a debate between Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, and we usually think that Thomas Paine is the good guy. But then when we end up putting one man next to another, as the proverb says, we find that actually one man, the, the first man wasn't quite right as we thought he was. And it really helps to understand the debates today. I mean, when I read that book, 
I have dozens and dozens of people I, I either they're friends of mine or I'm acquaintances with. I have seen on, you know, people on Facebook who end up, re- you know, libertarians who read this book and say, I was wrong. I'm a conservative now. Like it, it clicks. Why? Because there's a radical difference between Payne and Burke. And in and, and the debate, you're not going to understand what's going on today. You really won't. Not with that kind of understanding of understanding how it began. And then you'll see that really the arguments haven't really changed. The attitudes haven't really changed. Not really. I'm not saying there's no change, but that's the thing. And that's kind of, you know, this is something that I know that both of you would be quite happy to point out is that uh, there are permanent things, as Russell Kirk has, has said. There are permanent things. It's very easy to get dizzy looking at the news. And by all means, let's look at the news. But every now and then we need to reorient ourselves. And first and foremost, that's with scripture. But that doesn't mean that studying history or a history of, you know, a philosophy, a history of science, a history of theology doesn't help us to reorient ourselves and to give us that context and therefore to give us that perspective. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's permanent things and we need to seek those permanent things as an anchor to like orient us with a map. Uh, You know, it's, it's definitely absolutely necessary. I mean, for a lot of people's sanity, I don't see most people don't. I think a lot of times the people that don't do it, it's not because they don't, they're not capable of receiving the emotional gratification. It's simply because they've never habituated it. People think that they're, oh, well, I'm not smart. Therefore, I don't read books. My wife, she'll tell you she's not smart at all. Um, but she, you know, I, I got her into reading. I got, I got her into loving books. You know, I, I meet people all the time. Well, I don't like beer or I don't like cigars or I don't like. It's like there's literally thousands and thousands of flavors of beer thousands, hundreds, tens of thousands. You just haven't tried one you like. You know, so same thing with a book. If you don't like reading, maybe you need a little bit of remediation to get you up there. But trust me, once you find some books, you're going to love it. And then once you end up loving books, then you can start using it as a tool. And, you know, she, I mean, she's sitting there reading uh, Jane Austen left and right. And in the Jane Austen book, one of them, it's a particular series that we have. I know I'm going on here quite a bit. And I, I'll wrap it up with this. Uh, there's like a little afterward in the back and they provide like a historical and philosophical sort of context. And that's how I found out about the whole Burke thing. They talk about like Burke and Rousseau and this debate and that actually Jane Austen was speaking into that debate consciously, just like Dostoevsky has done and many others have done, right? Mark Twain has done. And which means, you know, again, you want to understand what the author and Sense and Sensibility is trying to get at. You need to understand what Sense and Sensibility was back then, what it meant meaning has changed a little bit and there was an actual debate they had that has echoes today so she's sitting there and she told me she found out that there that really burke's uh, philosophical inquiry into the beautiful and sublime is kind of important and it's connected to all this she wanted to go read it right and so uh, this stuff it's all connected and then i connected it further for her pointing out yes and not only that but um kant read it and he thought it was pretty impressive and she and she's just like oh i want to read all these things and connect all these dots to get it, it becomes fun i don't know how well you knew her back in college garrett but i mean it was reading no but anybody can learn to love to read anybody can well that's the funny thing about it right you know people act like reading is something people are born with or they're not but only a few people are born with that and everybody else well, you just straight out of luck and most people aren't readers. Some people are. But in actual fact, it's a habit that anybody can acquire. 
it's a muscle that needs to be developed just like any muscle. You know, my part-time job in high school was as a fitness instructor. And I distinctly remember people coming into the gym who they would admit, right? They would just say, I never worked out. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to start working out. I want to get healthier. I want to lose some weight. I want to feel like I have more energy. And my job was to, you know, first and foremost, make sure they didn't hurt themselves, but towards that end, teach them how to use the equipment. Here's what this does. Here's what this does. Here's how to stretch. Here's how to develop a workout plan and a routine, those kinds of things. But I would talk with them while they're on the treadmill, talk with them back and forth. And then they're not thinking first and foremost about how much they don't like exercising and their muscles are yelling at them and asking them, you know, what are you doing to me? You know, what are you doing? Stop, 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 stop. Uh, because they're focused on telling you their life story or you're chatting about you know, the weather or what's going on in the world. But it's just like that with books as well, right? You know, some people, they would come into the gym when I was in high school working at the YMCA. They would come into the gym four times a week, five times a week, and all they needed at most was a spotter, right? That, that was all they really needed. Somebody to spot me when I'm pushing my limits on the bench press or some such. And so you jump in and you help them out. And some people are like that with reading too. They just need a spotter every now and then. Other people who haven't acquired the habit, they need to acquire the habit. They need somebody to encourage them to do so. And that's where it helps to have people you can talk with about the books that you're reading, kick things back and forth to where if it's a bit of a difficulty to work those muscles that are not well-developed to acquire the habit in community, in talking with other people, you're going to be able to do that much more easily than you otherwise would. But in some sense, reading is an inherently conservative task. I mean, what is it that we're doing when we write something down, when we write a book, let's say, or when we paint a painting, for instance? What we're saying is these ideas, these thoughts that we had, we want to hold on to them. We don't want to lose them. We don't want to forget about them. This notable person or this scenery or this event that is being painted, we don't want to forget about it. We want to conserve the memory of it because this is important. This is significant. This means something, right? Yeah. Well, and that really brings up, I mean, we, we really could talk for hours on all this. It brings up the, the, the connection there uh, of the fact that Liberals, so many people don't realize they're liberal, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this perfectly here uh, in a succinct and yet very clear way. <laughs> that always scares me. You know, it's like, oh man, here I am about to put my foot in my mouth. However, I'm going to try. I have to try with trepidation. But, you know, one of the big differences, and, and as you're getting at, and this, the, the difference between Burke and Payne, Payne was like a miniature Rousseau in a way. Not, I mean, he was different. He was definitely different. But at the end of the day, he's liberal. And the contrast is stark when you put them side by side, and the contrast really, uh, and I don't know that I don't recall Levine quite making this the most stark. I don't quite remember. It's been some time. Maybe you can help me out here. But basically, a conservative believes that, on the whole, in the main, civilization is worth protecting, whereas liberals believe uh, tend. I mean, there's varying degrees, but liberals tend to believe that, on the whole. If destroying it is what is necessary to get it fixed, they're happy to destroy it. And that's a world of difference. And you'll find people all the time who will have this sort of idea that 
everything in civilization is inherently corrupt or that civilization is inherently corrupting. And they think that that's a conservative sentiment. And so why do I bring that up? Because it's connected to what you're saying. I've seen people argue, Christians argue that, oh, look at the, you know, the beauty of the sunset. No human can create anything so beautiful. And of course, in a certain sort of sense, that's absolutely true. But does that mean that we should be dis right now when the whole world is disparaging what man creates? Should we be disparaging the beauty that man creates? Is it not true that God is a creator and that God created humans to be creators? So if God created us to be creators, then we're to create beautiful paintings of sunsets. It's not it, just because it, oh, okay, great. So it's not as powerful and sublime as, as God's sunsets. Don't disparage it. It's still a beautiful thing. And that's kind of the difference in attitude is the liberals will sit there and disparage it. And, and, and if you're a Christian liberal, you'll, you'll put some Christianese on it. And, oh, well, God's sunset's way more beautiful than any sunset you can create. Well, yes, thank you. I Maybe I need the humble reminder, but <laughs> God loves it if I'm a painter that I do these paintings. And they are if they are good, then they are worth preserving. Uh, God cares about civilization. It, civilization is not... Civilization was the whole point, actually. We were put in in the garden to build it up. Mm. It's not it's not the evidence of corruption. It was the plan from the beginning, and that's the difference in attitude. And that that goes back to something I've heard. You know, some old British conservatives say is that we're, I mean, the best of us as as image bearers of God. Um, one of the greatest things you can say about God is that He's a creator and a redeemer of mm. of mankind. And one of the best ways that we can reflect that creative energy that God had had exhibited um, thousands of years ago when he spoke things into being, we're, we're sub-creators and, and we're not co-creators with God, but we reflect who we are made to be when we create beautiful things and can appreciate the beauty yeah, that God place in the universe. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that these people think that somehow it's unnatural for us to be creating civilization. Yeah. That roads and highways and, and these things are unnatural. That, that is, I think I've mentioned it before. That is, that is pure nonsense. The problem is, is that there's a grain of truth to it. You know, there is a sense in which we are apart from nature. Absolutely. But we are a part of nature. We are not somehow distinct from nature. So, I mean, get this. Again, I'm thinking of some, some, some Christians I know who they think they're conservative, but they espouse a bunch of liberal sentiments. Like, they would be shocked at what I'm saying. But it's like, no, come on. Yeah. We are not separate from nature. And a house is natural. How, how come if, if houses, mankind making houses is somehow unnatural, we need to go be in nature right. where with the birds and the bees and the beavers. Tell me this. If a beaver cuts down a tree and several trees and builds a its own domicile, that's natural. But if I cut down trees and I build that domicile, Somehow that's not natural. Right. Somehow I'm abusing nature. How come it's natural when the beaver does it? You've been reading Thoreau and Rousseau recently, I suppose, yeah. haven't you? Act, well, I've been skimming uh, in, uh, Thoreau a little bit. Yes. Uh, in, yes. yeah, but there's that essay, um, Two Kinds of American Conservatism by Richard Weaver. I've mm. got to get some folks to read that because he does an excellent job of showing, no, 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 there's the wrong kind of conservatism, or I'm sorry, a, a wrong kind of individualism. And then mm -hmm. there's the right kind of individualism, yeah. two kinds of American yeah. individualism. And we don't follow Thoreau. We follow um, John Randolph of Roanoke. The issue, mm -hmm. though, is, is that uh, John Randolph of Roanoke has not written some sort of famous book we can 
send people to. That's However, the- Russell Kirk wrote his master's thesis on John Randolph of Roanoke, and I've read parts of it, got it at the local library, and he's a strange bird, but a fascinating dude. I'm going to have to get more into him. Kirk, oh. Kirk loved John Randolph of Roanoke, and I don't understand it. He just seems like a nutcase in the Senate. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I mean, Kirk was a little weird, too. <laughs> he, was, he was very eccentric. Yes, this is true. As was Randolph, which may have been their connection. Well, you know, I'm, I'm struck by something here in how this conversation is evolving. And it has to do with going through the Bible, reading through the Bible again, cover to cover. I'm in the book of Exodus. And I've just gotten through the part where the golden calf incident takes place. And then there's judgment. You know, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and got the first set of the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. He came down and found the people worshiping this golden calf and partying and threw down the first set and then was given the second set by God. And there's this back and forth about whether God is going to go with them or not be in the midst of them because they're a stiff-necked people. But Moses prevails and is able to have this back and forth conversation with God. No, please, please, if I've found favor in your sight, please go with us. And then comes the relaying of the instructions that God gave to Moses. Moses then gives those instructions to the people as to the building of the tabernacle and the furnishings and the utensils and the priestly garments and all the rest. And there are two men in particular who are named who are going to be the primary ones overseeing this construction and the fashioning. And it says that God has blessed them with skill to do every kind of work with their hands and to make these things. God gives the specifications. He says, here's what the materials are going to be. Here's the dimensions. Here's the number of these items and their orientation relative one another. And here are these men in particular. There's lots of unsung heroes who aren't named, but there are these two men in particular who are named who are blessed with skill to do the work. But what we don't find is we don't find God himself doing the work for them. We don't find the people of Israel hanging back while God builds his own tabernacle and his own furnishings and his own utensils and the priestly garments. And he does all the work and they just wait. No, God gives instructions for the building of these things. And it is a cooperative thing. And I think there is something that should translate from that to the way that we think about building human civilization. Oh, yeah. The, uh, it's been a long time, so let me guess. Uh, Oholiab and Bezalel, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. So, yes, that, that passage, uh, it was been used in a book on art uh, from a Christian worldview, but um, regarding your application for civilization itself, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's so much, I could go on and on and on, probably getting on a soapbox you have fundamentalists. And by fundamentalist, I don't mean people like you and I who agree with the fundamentals. I mean those who are actually, one, rather anti-intellectual, two, anti-institutional, and three, actually agree with a lot of the liberal, uh, for example, liberal hermeneutics in some of the presuppositions. For example, a liberal and a uh, fundamentalist, as I define it, both agree that what is literal is true and what is figurative is false. The difference is that the fundamentalist, and this is a little bit crass, I know, 
the fundamentalist says all of the Bible is literal, therefore it's all true. And the liberal will sit there and say, oh, it's all figurative, therefore none of it's true. Right. But they both make the same presupposition. Uh, you and I, we say, no, that's just dumb. I mean, straight up. I mean, that's just not intelligent. Uh, figurative statements are still true statements. If I say Thomas Aquinas kicked the bucket, it's still true. It's just not literally true. It's not a, it's not somehow false, but it's very hard for the modernist, perhaps uh, the modern mind. Uh, I don't know how it would be with the postmodern mind to build a rap the brain around that concept, right? Mm -hmm. Civilization is meant to be built with man. And, and we have the same parallel application with regards to the word of God. People will sit there and, and you know, a man preaching, that's not the word of God, that's just that's just the preaching. Well, actually, um, there's three word of God. You have Jesus, the word of God. You have the written word of God, which was given to us, superintended by the Holy Spirit and is infallible, inerrant. And then you do have uh, fallible uh, preaching, which is also distinct from the written word, but it's still the preaching of the word is also distinctly the word somehow. I can't answer how it's a mystery, but it is true. See, conservatives and liberals in the church, especially you know those of a more reformed sort of persuasion, it gets interesting because those in authority over me, if they do what is foolish or ignorant or even sinful, Insofar as, and, and this opens a whole can of worms we, we obviously can't get into tonight, and I'm not even sure I can, can unpack it. But if my father, suppose I'm a 10-year-old kid, my father tells me to do something that is not sin for me to do, but my father, in a, a, the sinfulness or ignorance or foolishness of his heart, I, in my wisdom, somehow I have wisdom that's actually more correct than my father's. I'm still to obey, even though my father may be foolish, blind, ignorant, and sinful. God is perfect and perfectly able to use imperfect tools. And that's something that people don't seem to understand. Uh, absolutely. We have imperfect people who are creating an imperfect civilization. But I rest my head on my pillow at night knowing that there is a perfect God that somehow mysteriously uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect goals. This civilization will be built. And, and there's going to be lots of destruction. But at the end of the day, God's will will be done. That's my comfort. You know, it makes me think of the original tragedy, the tragedy that began all tragedies in terms of human history with Adam and Eve eating of the fruit of that one tree, just the one tree in Eden they were told not to eat of and they ate of it. And the whole race fell in Adam. And we look at that and we think hypothetically what might have been had they not fell, if that were even possible for them to have not fallen in sin and for things to have worked out differently, would they have built civilization? I would say so. But such as it is, what we find when we survey ancient history, take the Greeks and the Romans, for instance, great builders of civilization, almost unmatched, and yet they weren't able to sustain the building of civilization, but it was Christianity that provided the stabilizing agent because what does God say, even in the case of Paul's thorn in the flesh, he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is shown perfectly in weakness. We see God using imperfect people and only imperfect people throughout 
the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, to build his kingdom. Well, his kingdom is a civilizing influence here on earth. It's a stabilizing influence. When you have people who are imperfect, what do you do? Well, apart from Christ, we just eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth one another until the whole world is blind and toothless. But such as it is with Christianity stabilizing the developments of those who didn't know God, who were builders of civilization, what we find is we can have grace towards our ancestors, towards those who went before us, and we ourselves as well, and one another as well, and our descendants, our our progeny, as well as our ancestry. We can have grace, and that allows for being able to move on when there is imperfection, when there is sin, when there is folly, when there is a mistake made here or an error there or bad faith on occasion. There is an ability to continue building civilization only with Christian faith being in the mix, right? I believe that, in my opinion, back to why we should read old books, um, part of it is because I believe... I almost want to go so far as to say it's a command. We are called to honor our mother and father. And historically, the, like the Westminster Confession understands that honoring your mother and father um, is not just about your mother and father. It doesn't mean like somehow you can dishonor your grandpa and your grandma or just spurn your great grandparents, you know, flip them off or something. No, like there's a certain sort of honor. It implies uh, those who, who are really your ancestors, those who came before you uh, and who brought you about that you owe something to. And a part of what is owed, I would argue, is getting to understand them, getting to know them. Now, I'm not saying that if I don't read every book or something, I'm in sin, or you have to read X amount of books. No, no, no. no. What I'm saying is, is that I'm not to turn a blind eye to them, as if I cannot, as if they have nothing to teach me, as if they wrote nothing for me. They have left me stuff. It is not just stuff. It is an inheritance. It is our heritage. Not just mine, but ours. And it's something that we're not to just ignore and despise and let collect dust and go to waste. No, that, that would be very foolish. Well, and regarding um, Bobby's line about God using imperfect people in his economy of redemption and mercy and salvation. But Ignatius of Loyola once said that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And I think that's exactly what Bobby was getting at a minute ago. But um, not, there, there's no such thing as a perfect human being, whether alive now or in the future or one of our forefathers, you know, either as Americans or uh, whatever your heritage is. You can't look back at the German people and say that they were all perfect, but that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater and just mm-hmm. commit iconoclasm and say, heck with all you guys, we're, we're bigger, smarter, better, and more moral than any of you people. So heck with it all. You know, it makes me think, Joseph, about... Having done some genealogy research on my mother's mother's side, the McFarlands, and going back as far as I possibly could, I find these little anecdotes on different members of the family tree, you know, clan chiefs and barons and even kings of Scotland and Dalriada and high kings of Ireland and all the rest. And, you know, it's not the point that there are remarkable people in my family, you know, going back hundreds of years. That's not the point. The point is some of those anecdotes I can't be proud of. 
because I look at them and I think, ooh, that's not so good, right? That didn't have a good effect. Actually, that had a bad effect that rippled down through the generations. There was a cost to that decision or that engagement or that response, or there was a missed opportunity, I think, here or there. But on the flip side, if I see some remarkable things, if I see some good things and I just pass over them and I throw the whole thing out because it's not all good, then as a Christian, am I perhaps missing out on an opportunity to submit all these things to God so that he redeems them, so that he reclaims them, so that he puts them to use? Am I going to the parable of the talents? Am I burying talents in a field, as it were? If there are some good traits, some good characteristics, if there is something to honor and to embody and to live up to, perhaps we could say, if there's something to live up to in my family history on that side, am I burying talents in a field to not take those thoughts captive to Christ and submit all of the above to service now? I, I would say so. Yeah. Found the passage. Can I read it? Shoot, please. Okay. So Judges chapter eight, uh, I'm not entirely sure which verse it is because I have one of those leaders versions. That's really kind of nice. But anyways, it's an ESV translation, page 347. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, comma, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, comma, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. That is interesting. When they sinned against God, it's not surprising. Jesus said, hey, you know, want to know what the sum of the law is? Love God and love your neighbor, right? So it, like, if you get one wrong, you're going to get the other one. wrong. So it's not surprising that there's a connection here. So they turned away from not Gideon. He's dead. They turned away from honoring, or, or I'm sorry, the language is steadfast love towards his family. I find that interesting. I think that there's a connection there with the concept of lineage and heritage. And the way, in our individualistic age, I'm not arguing social justice. Social justice is blat blatantly wrong. <laughs> okay, that, that's pretty simple um, to say. Yeah. Uh, now, explaining exactly why is it that his family deserves steadfast love when Gideon is the hero? Hmm. Mm, 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 mm. Well, and you know, it's like one of those um, do not remove the ancient boundary stone type scenarios, I think, you know, this, this family. So I don't know if it's his children or his grandchildren that are referenced in that judge's passage. Um, just, just children. Okay. I think so. so Gideon's Gideon's deceased, but we need to honor his legacy and his memory and the, you know, the, the good that he, he did in saving the people of Israel. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of a, an Eastern versus Western thought too, you know, that individual is everything versus the family, the community, and your relations are everything. The Bible is amazingly balanced on that. Yeah, exactly. Right? I think here of, you know, not so much that his family did anything to deserve 
being taken care of in and of themselves. I mean, maybe there were sacrifices because he wasn't there because he was taking care of business. He was expending himself. He was investing himself in serving the Lord and in serving his people, his country, his nation. So his family is not first and foremost deserving of the honor just because he did a good thing, because Gideon did a good thing. But more so, how, what would honor and reward him? What would please him after he's gone? Uh, if a friend of mine were to pass away and then I saw his family was in need, or even if a friend of mine were out of town and his family needed something, because of my love for my friend, because I value my friend, even when he's not here, even when he's gone, I'm going to step in and I'm going to help his family because that's what would honor him. That's what would demonstrate that I love my friend and I appreciate him and I value him. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly how it is. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think that's probably really the best way to help us think about it. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, a friend of mine or something of a friend of mine, uh, you know, things have changed over the years, but, you know, we were really close for a long time and you can't ever exactly pay that debt, if you will. Um, you know, and so if and when his father, his father's health is failing and if and when his father does finally um, pass away, I have every intention of being there. Um, if nothing else, I, 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 I don't owe it to the father. I owe it to my friend, even if my friend is dead. Right. Like, I mean, there's something I owe his family because of my connection to him. And that goes very much against a wrong kind of individualism and an increasing kind of individualism that we have today. And I, I want to make a quick note about that individualism. Part of the individualism that we have today is not just because of ideas and books like Thoreau, but also uh, just the sheer consequence of sin. Um, and by what I mean by that is, you know, I was thinking about you know, all, all the medical stuff that we have kind of going on in our lives. And, you know, my wife's making multiple doctor's appointments today and she takes care of all of that stuff. And I made a certain sort of joke about the fact, like, oh, it was, it was paying for some schooling stuff. And I made a joke about how, you know, um, she, you know, doesn't have permission to pay my bills because then it'd be a violation of my privacy because then she would find out how much I owe. And yeah, because I mean, like they, they take this, you know, stuff way, I mean, you can't, she cannot talk to anybody even though she's my wife. And it's just asinine. But one of the reasons it exists, I found out some time ago, is because, and there's been a few rare cases, but it's happened, I guess, where a couple get divorced, they're, they're separated, they're going to get a divorce, the hospital doesn't know that, somebody calls up to get a hold of some stuff to use maliciously. You know, it's like, because of how debauched we are becoming, you guys heard about things like revenge porn, probably, all of these sort of like, like, it's like, wait a minute, what? Like, okay, lots, a lot of this divorce stuff sinful, but why are we like adding sin upon sin here, mm. right? And so it spills over into other sorts of spheres like the medical community where they have to play damage control. So as much as, I mean, how much should I fault them for that, you know? Mm. I, you know, I suppose that, you know, my wife and I are about to get divorced sinfully and in order to spite me, she decides to go ahead and get into the bank account and take all the money. Yeah, I mean, those things, you, you know, those that's happened a lot. Right. Right. So I, I, part of me has gotten to where I kind of, you know, it's sad, it's wrong, it's not, shouldn't be this way. But part of it's, you know, an aspect, you know, it's really the best analogy 
is a medical analogy. We've used it before. You know, it, the ideal is not for you to have one leg, okay? But if your leg is damaged enough, it's better we go ahead and move it. Um, you know, it's, it's like this is not the way it should be, but it may be what indeed needs to be done. This certain sort of individualism that is tearing apart the South, that, that you know, that external pressure that, that marriages feel. Well, it's this idea of the atomized individual, right? The autonomous individual, where the individual has no responsibility or duty to his neighbor. And that is antithetical to the second command, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The first command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second command is like it because man is made in God's image. And so to love your neighbor is in some sense to love the almighty, is to love the image of the almighty, the likeness of God. But where we have this breakdown, I think, with the atomized individual is we see ourselves being wronged or potentially being wronged, and then it becomes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. Why would I forgive that guy? I don't need to forgive that guy. I don't need to do anything kind towards him. I don't need to be merciful. Well, wait a second. Micah 6.8, for the Christian to remember that he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. That's great. Okay, good. Do justice. You could do justice, I suppose, as an atomized individual, as an autonomous individual, but the love mercy and walk humbly with your God bit, that's a lot trickier. That's a lot more difficult to do when you see yourself as totally disconnected, totally separate, and totally apart from those around you. You know, To love mercy is to say, I do have a responsibility to more than just myself. I have a responsibility to be merciful towards my neighbor. I'm not being merciful towards myself. I love mercy. Yeah, sure. When God is being merciful towards me, but I love to be merciful towards others as well and to be charitable and to be compassionate towards them, even if they've wronged me, even if they might potentially wrong me, even, even if they're my enemy. When that's not happening, we have a breakdown of trust in every sphere. And that includes marriage, that includes in our extended family that includes our churches, that includes our charitable organizations and our corporations and our communities. It includes every area of human relationship and activity where trust would be so helpful. When there's a lack of trust, there's a cost there and it slows everything down. It makes it not work so great. I would go farther than that. Um, I think I may maybe have thrown it out to you guys before as, as my take. I, I don't know, but my opinion is, is that mercy and justice in one's character are so united that if a man does not love mercy, he will not pursue justice. And if he does not pursue justice, he will never know mercy. Uh, you, you will never find anybody who is outright, I mean, blatantly just an unjust character. And somehow the man has mercy. I don't think you ever will. Um, so it's it, which goes back to, you know, the social justice advocates. They're sitting there. Clearly, I think clear as day that they pervert mercy. They do not know mercy. And if they do not know mercy, and, and they, it really is connected to justice, you need to question whether or not they actually know justice. I don't think they do. 
And that's kind of like the character of God, right? If God is all love and no wrath or all justice and no mercy, then he's not God. It's one is the flip side of the coin uh, sure. of the other attribute. Yep. That, uh, part of that's because of the fact that, you know, and this, of course, raises a whole other debate. But, you know, uh, it is classic theological position. All that is in God is God. So all of his attributes, actually speaking, in truth, are all one. Mm. We need to talk about them separately because we are finite creatures. We can only deal with one thing at a time. But in truth, um, you could almost say, <laughs> I hesitate to, to go here, um, especially since I only get to dabble in these things, right? But um, I would at least, if nothing else, metaphorically, I would say there are no attributes because that would imply parts. Right. All that is in God, which is nothing, there's nothing in God, truly, strictly, and technically, but everything that is in God is God. All is one. Now, that's not a pantheistic uh, position, uh, but we it's are... a pantheist position because everything in God is is God and... No, I'm just messing <laughs> <laughs> um, well and here we get into quite a theological discussion which i'm really not prepared for but um i want to move on to our second question and our second question to consider here is this bobby i'll start with you how does what we're doing with this podcast with in gladii veritas the reformed conservative refcon press you name it how does that fit into the task of equipping the saints for the work of ministry and a Christian life well-lived and fruitful, neither naive nor anxious, because we should try to avoid both in such times as we're now living and given everything that we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I, I think that some of my previous answers really kind of pointed to this one. Uh, in order to do a decent job, a better job, the best job I can do. I mean, in order to do the best job I can do, you know, don't be conformed to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, repent, grow in faith and love and hope and, and, and grow in repentance, grow in sanctification, right? I mean, that, that's how you are going to love your neighbor. So again, I can't, you know, emphasize enough sanctification, right? But besides the obvious standard question of, of sanctification and whatnot, there is a, as you're saying, practical aspect of getting to understand our culture, our history, our heritage, our context, in order to better understand the man next to us. When we understand the man next to us, we're better able to love him. I mean, for crying out loud, something I learned big time over and over and over, it was, it was a bit of a tough lesson in my undergrad, was an awful lot of the times I'm disagreeing with somebody, I actually found out it's not really because we're disagreeing. It sounds like we're radical contradictions, but we mean something totally different. And that was very helpful to go through because it kind of helps me to kind of calm down a little bit and spend a little more time doing what's called coming to terms. A little more time trying to get to understand what the other person means. And we don't do that enough. We really don't. Uh, yeah, it, sometimes it's, it's used in a manipulative way where people will sit there and to try to tell a conservative, you need to uh, listen more to the social justice warriors in order to get you to shut up. And I think that's terrible. No, I, but setting that manipulative aspect aside, there is a legitimate use for this. Oh, getting to understand people, when we understand the books 
that have shaped our ideas, our moral imagination, the arguments and the ideas, the, the narratives that have shaped the American mind. We better understand the typical American and we're better equipped to talk with him, converse with him, help him to see the truth, or, or even ourselves escape from some false ideas or emotions that we have been shaped by. I mean, I, I could give you a specific example. I think I think maybe we talked about it before. The yeah, the um, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Pirates of the Caribbean series, is if you if it's not social justice, fine. It's borderline and, and, and really feeds into it perfectly. It takes the good guy, makes him the bad guy, and the bad guy makes him a good guy. It takes uh, the pirate and actually makes him the hero, right? And it takes these these captains and officers and soldiers we're supposed to you know they're kind of like cops we're gonna go get the bad guys they're actually the bad guys and you're rooting for really the the cool pirates and then when you're done watching these movies you go out into real life you, you walk out into your street and you see this gangster and this cop and this cop arresting this gangster and what are you gonna think gangster is kind of like a pirate the cop's kind of like captain of a ship dude that's just postmodern art though i mean we 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 are all about glorifying the bad guy, making them hip and cool and attractive. And the yep. good guys are boring and reactionary and backward. They're but the lame. fact that, but we watch these movies thinking they're just movies. It's just entertainment. It's harmless. No, that, that is the biggest lie that evangelicals have ever bought. And, mm. and, and it doesn't fly in my house at all. Yeah, that's the thing about it. These movies, the better they're made, the more they really are a love letter to someone's philosophy, theology, ideology, worldview. Yeah. 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 And we, we need to be sitting there tearing it apart. And when I say tearing it apart, don't read into that in some sort of wrong way. We need to be able to understand exactly what's going on here. So we can sit there and actually help understand those in our house and in the house next to us. It's not, I mean, you don't sit there and just ignore all of these things. Oh, it's just, and you don't ignore the stories of today or the stories of yesterday. They're all connected. Well said. Yeah. And that's what TRC is doing. That's what we've been trying to do with IGV. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. It's not to say we're going to bat a thousand, but it is to say the only way that we're going to acquire these skills and get better at being persuasive and rightly handling the word of truth is through practice and persistent, sustained, intentional effort. It's not something that's just going to happen or it doesn't happen. It's not something that we're going to just accidentally fall in. It's not something that we're just born with. And if that's what we're doing with these ventures and we're inviting other people to come along and we're inviting other people to get a look into the process and how we're doing it and that it can be done. We can get better over time. If you keep listening, you keep reading, you're going to see that we're getting better over time. Well, then maybe that inspires them. Maybe it doesn't persuade everybody, all our friends and family and strangers on the internet. It Maybe it doesn't persuade everybody the first time around, but maybe it at least puts a little bit of a pin in their minds on certain things. And then when reality bears out that we were telling the truth when we were telling the truth from God's word or from history or from good works of commentary and philosophy and theology, well, then they can remember that we said something about these things and they can be helped by that. They can know that there's some other option besides just continuing on living in folly, living in an ignorance 
right? Maybe they're not persuaded right off the bat. Maybe it takes some time and you just have to be patient. You have to keep on doing what God has called you to. And you leave the results to him. You leave the fruit to him. Uh, Also too, if for no other reason, we don't have anybody's blood on our hands, if we were giving our very best efforts by God's grace to warn others and to give them good counsel. We don't have anybody's blood on our hands where they're going to say, oh, if only somebody had told me, if only somebody had talked about these things. No, you know, we'll be able to raise our hands and say, no, we did. We did talk about these things. If it didn't get through, well, you know, we, we tried, right? We at least tried. We can have a good conscience about it in that case. Well, and I think, I think, you know, there's something to that. I mean, the, when the whole world is madly rushing off a cliff, like um, lemmings or something, the goal of the sane man is to stop, run the other direction and warn his friends and neighbors that what they're doing is, is foolhardy and self-destructive and suicidal, you know? And, and so that's kind of the effort I think of Bobby is we're, we're madly rushing and, and neglecting entirely an entire uh, corpus of thought. People who have thought deeply about God and the world and man and sin and salvation. Um, And we're, we're, kind of trying to, in a conservative way, to revisit the wisdom of ages past, whether they be Dutch or British or English or, uh, or, or Eastern, right? Um, we are not neglecting the wisdom of our forebears, and we're warning the people that the path and the trajectory that they're on as a culture is uh, madly suicidal. You know, I think we see that in the transgender movement as well these days where, you know, what Christians are trying to do when they're trying to be faithful to God's word and they're trying to say, no, 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 stop, let's not affirm this, is they're trying to say to people who believe they're a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, no, 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 please don't do this. You know, th- this is going to lead you to despair in the end. This is not going to make you happy. You, you think this is going to make you happy, but it's not going to make you happy. It's going to wreck you. And probably leaving you despairing of even life itself. And probably yeah. named of, of God-given body parts. That's right. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. You know, and, and what is it the Christians are trying to say in that case? They're trying to say, hey, please don't do this thing, right? And, and what do we find in the case of many of these uh, you know, people who have gone through the gender reassignment surgery – and now they have, you know, pain and discomfort and they're on medication for the rest of their lives. And a lot of people who have transitioned are now detransitioning and they're saying, I was not fully informed about this, right? I, I was not given all of the facts on the front end. I was too young to be making this decision. And somebody, if only somebody would have come along and said, oh, don't do this thing, right? Don't, don't do this to yourself, that actually would have been the most loving thing. And so Christians now have to figure out how do we articulate that we care about you. We don't want you to do this thing. We don't want you to maim yourself and mutilate yourself and be harmed by it. It's the most loving thing we could possibly do. And we've got to look at the whole counsel of God in God's word. We've got to look at 2000 years of church history to see how have Christians pleaded with those around them who are hostile to their warnings, 
in times past? How do we do that and bear up under hostility and animosity and resentment and even threats? Because even if we're being threatened, it's the most loving response we could possibly offer to what's going on around us. And what about the medical community? We didn't even mention the Hippocratic Oath and do no harm, right? I mean, this is nothing but harm. Mm-hmm. My understanding is, is, uh, and I'm not exactly a medical expert here, but I read uh, somewhere from somebody who's supposed to be in the know. I can't. I, it, it escapes my my brain yeah. at the moment, yeah. but um, I don't think they actually take the Hippocratic oath anymore. Mm. Right? Oh, really? It's not even. It, they're not even going through the motions. I'm pretty sure they stopped that. Yeah. Well, and and this is the problem with social justice, right? That. It, you, you can do any amount of harm whatsoever, you know, you can conceive of to the individual so long as in the end, you know, I'm, the greater good is accomplished, right? In, in every sphere of human activity, it doesn't really matter if this person, my neighbor, singular, is trampled on so long as somebody or everybody or everybody who's left or everybody who matters or everybody who needs to be uh, getting their social justice uh, reparations, as long as they are helped by it, then it, it's okay, right? So do no harm is somewhat you know meaningless if we're treating everything as collective and not treating our neighbor with individual care. True story. I think I told you guys, true story though, I, I guarantee your audience has probably not heard about this. When I was in the military, you know, over 10 years ago. That's actually quite some time ago when you think about all that has transpired in this past decade. Okay. Over a decade ago, I remember we received a sexual assault briefing and they told us that the formal official policy, I'm not exaggerating one iota, the formal official policy is if you are a man who is charged with sexual harassment, you will be prosecuted you are guilty until proven innocent, the official military policy, because of social justice. And what they meant by this was the collective justice. The argument was so many women never report it, and so many guys get away with it, that this needs to be, even if you are actually innocent, because by you paying for Mm. what you shouldn't pay for, you're balancing the scales. Mm. They argued that on everybody was livid. Guilty until proven innocent in the military. Everybody was everybody was livid. That is social justice. And that is not justice. Biblical justice actually takes what is called mens rea into account. It takes uh, your intention, your heart into account. We see that actually with scripture. Uh, It's fascinating that in the book of Genesis, we have God who knows everything. It's a rhetorical question. You know, God knows everything. When he asks you, hey, Adam, where are you, buddy? (laughs) not because he doesn't know oh he knows when he says what'd you do did you eat the fruit he knows but he's he's asking because what he's doing is he's giving you a chance to explain yourself Mm. to give reason Mm. and social justice it you know it's not biblical justice because that's the difference at the end of the day there is no chance for you to give an accountability of yourself yeah, there are no reasons when you're dealing only in the collective sense and only with everybody being guilty or everybody being innocent based on what category they fit into. But we do see in 
the Old Testament, for instance, we do see people who are not God's people, who are actually of rival nations, who worship other gods, being grafted in to Israel because they believe in God. They put their faith in God and their faith is credited to them as righteousness. Uh, We also see sometimes God's people are going wayward and they're misbehaving and they're being wicked. And what does God not do in either case? He doesn't punish the innocent along with the guilty. He doesn't punish the wicked and the righteous altogether. But he knows who is guilty and who is innocent. And he has that complete knowledge. He has that omniscience that we don't have. And so we've got to hold these things together in our minds all at the same time that you don't clear the guilty, right? And say, oh, well, everybody's innocent because some people are innocent. You don't do that. But you also don't say, well, everybody's guilty because even, let's say, a lot of people are guilty. You don't do that. You have to hold these things at the same time. Yeah. Well, I don't know how well that's going to go. Well, I guess this really leads into our next question, which is, what would you say are the biggest challenges to helping others to agree that these are worthy goals in our day, to read, to study, to think deeply, to delve into these things, to search the scriptures, to read history, to read philosophy, to read theology? You know, Is it a kind of pessimistic fatalism that we're up against and trying to overcome? Is it a preoccupation with presentism, what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery? Do we run the risk of being accused of tribalism or... What what are our big hurdles here? And and either of you, whichever one of you wants to answer that first, uh, please jump right in. You want to take that first, Joseph? Give me like fifteen. Yeah, minutes. you know, and I'm I'm kind of thinking through this because there's a lot of challenges that are coming up. Um, whether whether it be environmental or population, or whether it be China and geopolitics, or whether it be America committing civilizational suicide, we've got a host, a litany of problems looking at us. But I think I think I think a lot of it comes down to um, not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not loving our neighbors as ourselves. I think there, like like in Judges, there is no fear of God before our eyes, and we we've got um, millennials and Gen Z who are abandoning church and God and organized religion and just giving up in despair and saying, "I'm going to go make a million dollars on TikTok, doing whatever the heck they do on TikTok." Um, so I think, I think a lot of it comes down to what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Um, but there's a host of problems that some of these guys that I listed in question one addressed. But I think this, the, if I could sum it up and, and say one thing, it's that there's no fear of God before our eyes and everyone does what is right as, as he deems fit. Obviously, I can't you know, argue against that. Um, but you know, to further to try to think out loud intellectual laziness is an issue and it's an issue in broad evangelicalism the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s that was a devastating time you had some uh, pretty i mean basically every seminary went liberal Hmm. all of the christian intellectuals pretty much just disappeared practically overnight i mean it was it was a massive loss so what was left for the most part was not actually a whole lot of we had to rebuild our conservative institutions so uh, 
that caused us to band together and uh, it, it created a course of doctrinal minimalism. And in all of that, having all of a sudden a whole bunch of intellectuals, and by intellectuals, all I mean is tons and tons of churches, thousands of them, had all of these pastors all of a sudden who had a seminary degree over a, a bunch of parishioners who didn't have any degree. And, you know, the, the parishioners knew that those liberal pastors were wrong, but they didn't have a degree to refute them, right? Mm -hmm. And so with this rejection of those liberal pastors came a rejection of seminaries. And with the rejection of seminaries came also a rejection of the Christian mind. Now, it's not gotten better. We have elites today who are still the, uh, the albatross around our neck, weighing us down, and it's a problem. Many conservatives struggle to believe that books are worthwhile, partially because so much of the enemy uses books against them. I think that's part of the. I mean, we have to overcome that. You know, I think you're of G. Gresham Machen and his writing at the time that the universities and the seminaries were becoming liberal and having very strong language to describe liberal theology, basically calling it modern-day Gnosticism and likening the liberal theologians to the Judaizers, basically saying these guys are preaching a different gospel. This is not the gospel. You can't just fiddle with it any way you like. But transpose Jake Gresham Machen into our day and have him commenting on our doctrinal minimalism because we want to be unified around the gospel. It makes me think of Mark Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, versus Carl Truman's response, The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. You've got Mark Knoll asserting his thesis that the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't much of one. There isn't much of an evangelical mind. And he bemoans conservative Christians in particular abandoning academia, where it should be noted they're not welcome, right? They're, they're not welcome. It's not like they just checked out. They were disinvited. They were, they were made to feel unwelcome in the first place. But you have Carl Truman responding that, no, actually, the real scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical because we don't agree about the evangelion, what it is. What, what is the gospel anyways? It, it, you can't just use the word sounds and then have them mean this broad range of things and say we have unity. But you know that brings up another question, right? It, you know, One of the challenges that we're going to run into as we're encouraging people to read and think deeply and at length about these things and get into the details and really delve into what we believe and what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, how are we going to overcome the hurdle of being told, we don't want to get into all that because it's going to be divisive. We need to be unified. That's going to be divisive. Let's not get into the details. Let's not deal in specifics because we need to be about unity. It's going to be hard work. Hard work and uh, a lot of hard work, sweat, blood, and tears, and a lot of love, patience, and forgiveness. I mean, straight up. Uh, it's it, And at the end of the day, uh, I'm going to go ahead and go there. I'm going to go ahead and say it's not going to happen without a work of the Holy Spirit. This, this isn't you know something that we can create. Because you're talking about unity. You're talking about uh, uh, and a, like a psychological sort of level, a practical sort of level, et cetera. And you're also talking about sanctification. You're talking about a lot of things here. At the end of the day, uh, I mean – this is still in the hands of the Holy Spirit. 
Mm. Well, and, and something Dr. George Grant out of Franklin, Tennessee said, and he may have been quoting someone here, but I don't have the quote in front of me. It's something to the effect that we can pray with all of our hearts for revival, but if we're not at the same time laboring diligently for reformation and to evangelize our neighbors and to build new institutions and sanctify or save previous ones, then our prayers are in vain. Now, and that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Garrett, about the fact that, you know, God uses means, mm. uh, you know, and w w which, again, is something that you find in the church people really struggle with. Oh, well, those are just the, the words of men or the actions of men or or yes, uh, which God <laughs> uses. <laughs> Paul was not sinless. Mm. Come on, he murdered people. Was any of the patriarchs in Genesis? I yeah. mean, it starts with a series Moses of was not sinless. Men. Right. God uses right. sinful, fallible men to yeah. write infallible books. Right. Come on, why is this? Uh, this should not be complicated, but for some reason, oh, no, 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 get away from men because they're going to screw everything up. Yes, they are going to screw things up. And by God's grace, God is going to make it perfect. Don't be scared uh, of men. We trust in God's sovereignty. Hmm. Yeah, his goodness, his grace, his ability to accomplish everything he has promised to. Absolutely. He's not going to fail. And man, here's the deal is there are people out there and these are the sort of people that I've just been kind of speaking to, not necessarily to, but like speaking, you know, about, um, there tend to be of the sort to think that there it's a zero sum game that mm -hmm. when man gets in the way, God gets out of the way. And when God gets in the way, man gets out that, that, you know, man actually has the ability to stop God. That's not how I see it. That's not the that, In fact, I would argue that's not the Christian faith. <laughs> that's not a sovereign God. And I mean, it's funny how I keep kind of going back to the whole um, God sovereignty question. But I mean, man, that, that so is. You're not a monarchist. monarchist. You're a synergist in this case. Well, yeah, we're not talking about justification. We're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just throwing out theologically. Yeah, yeah. What, what we're talking about man's actions regarding civilization. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'll go ahead and throw this out there to somebody's chagrin, but I'm not a post mill. Um, but that does not mean I have to be wholly pessimistic. Mm -hmm. My optimism is a, a tempered optimism, you might say. It's a certain sort of qualified optimism. You know, I'm not sitting there in despair. I believe things are going to be getting bad, uh, and I do believe in the end we win. And, and, and I think that people don't really quite understand how I balance that. Uh, yes, things are going to get worse, and yes, we're going to win in the end. It's, mm -hmm. it's not hard to. I mean, if you through at the same time, yeah, they can be. I mean, if you're going to go through selection, right, and you had an angel tell you, all right, you want to be special forces, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you're going to make it. But on day two or day three, you know it's going to get worse. <laughs> okay. Even though you're going to make it in the end, you know it's going to get worse. So, I mean, it's, uh, I think things are going to get worse, but God is building his kingdom and mm -hmm. the gates of hell will not prevail. Yeah. You know, it, it makes me think of Exodus again, where, you have God appearing to Moses in the burning bush and telling him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you get through everything with Moses saying he's not so good with the talking and God telling him, I'll send Aaron with you. And that's all well and good. And of course, <laughs> the handling of Moses is very brilliant and gracious of God but you have God telling Moses on the front end, he's not going to listen to you. Go to Pharaoh, but he's not going to listen to you. In fact, not only is he not going to listen to you, I'm going to harden his heart. And he won't listen to you. And 
Moses goes back again and again and again with Aaron and repeatedly Pharaoh doesn't listen, but God still gets glory in that. And that should be instructive for us as well. Yeah. Pharaoh's not going to win. <laughs> I mean, what do you, I mean, and yet again, I, I feel like I meet evangelicals, so-called evangelicals who get this idea that Pharaoh's going to win. Like, no, <laughs> even though it's the new Testament, Pharaoh does not win. God is sitting on his throne and he will win. He's in control the entire time. Well, and we read in the Old Testament that Pharaoh and his chariots were drowned in the Red Sea miraculously. And we mm -hmm. read in the New Testament that uh, Satan and his minions, even though the sky turns into, we see the blood of the moon and the stars fall. Uh, yet we read Revelation 21 and 22 and see Christ on his throne mm -hmm. and all things being put under his feet in the end. I think here of helping out with youth group this week and leading discussion among uh, about 10 middle schoolers. And I, I do that on a fairly regular basis at our church. And we're going through the book of Acts this year. And the part of Acts specifically that was this most recent reading was the very tail end of the 22nd chapter and then all of chapter 23, where you have Paul being warned that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be killed. And his fellow Christians are pleading with him. They're crying, telling him, please don't go. And yet he goes anyways. And then when he's preaching to the Jews about Jesus, they become incensed. They seize him. They are going to put him to death. They take him to the tribune. The tribune's going to have him flogged and questioned. And what does Paul do? He, he knows he's going to be seized and killed when he goes to Jerusalem, and yet he makes mention of having Roman citizenship. And he knows exactly what's going to happen with that. All of a sudden, the whole situation changes, and it's not lawful to treat a Roman citizen this way. He needs to have a jury and a judge and a trial, and it's a process. And you don't just punish a Roman citizen this way on the mere accusation of impropriety just because the crowd is upset. You don't do that. That's not Roman justice. Then when Paul is hauled before a joint session of Sadducees and Pharisees, he perceives that they are Sadducees and Pharisees. And what does he do? He plays up being a Pharisee. And then all of a sudden they're violently disagreeing with each other instead of focused on how to dispense with him, how to you know, do away with him. And then next he has his nephew come to him warning about 40 men who have made a pledge, an oath to not eat or drink anything until they have slain Paul. And they're going to be lying in wait, lying in ambush to kill him when he is transported from that place. And Paul says to the centurion, yeah, come, come here, take him to the tribune so that he can tell the tribune what he just told me. And, and Paul knows exactly what's going to happen. But all of that is to the end of going to Rome because Christ has told Paul he's going to go to Rome and he's going to preach the gospel in Rome. And so with the time that we've got left, uh, can you guys speak to that and, and how that fits into the equation here with what we're discussing in terms of being well-studied and articulate and all the rest? Well, I'll jump in and say that 
that bit with Paul, Paul certainly sets an example for us to follow. We were to follow him as he follows Christ, and he did not fail us in that example. Um, he, under, he, he was a man like the men of Iskar who understood the times. But it doesn't mean that he had no training in the old books, the old ways, the old information of the past, because he most decidedly did. You could not be a Pharisee without being very knowledgeable about the heritage, the tradition that you've been passed on. And a real quick point about the, the word tradition. Uh, again, like you find correctly in scripture, the word tradition being disparaged and attacked, rightly so, because in that context, tradition is used to subvert or do away with the word of God. But you also find tradition used well. Paul talks about tradition that he hands down to us. Tradition is simply a body of knowledge that is passed down to the next generation and the next. Our Bible is a tradition. Now, it's not merely a tradition of men, but it is a tradition that God has given us. So we're not to sit there to, you know, think that we can understand the times by ignoring the past. And it's true. We should not escape into the past and ignore the present. Uh, back to that balance that, you know, we, we questioned in a you know, previous conversation. I don't have a perfect answer for that, but uh, I did get a partial answer. There, there was an explanation that was given to me, basically, that you don't really need to teach kids to study up on the current debates and, and, and topics and books too much because they already will. You, you don't have to assume that they're going to keep up with current controversies. It's the old stories and the old controversies that they have to be initiated into. And that clicked. It's like, oh, all right. So really, I mean, in a way, spend by and large, spend your younger years really getting it. And if you didn't get it when you're in your younger years, then you need to make up for it like me later. But, uh, you know, if, if you get a good, solid classical education, for uh, if, if, we, if we want to use that term, then it doesn't mean you never read something old again. But you're prepared in theory. That's the idea. And it's like, oh, that kind of makes sense. There's something to it. Yeah. And regarding specifically Paul, talk about years and years of preparation and God oh. like plucking him as a brand and as a chosen instrument. It's like, all right, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So he knows and keeps the law and has studied the traditions. He's, he's a persecutor of Christians who was zealous for the faith. He just had the wrong faith at the time until God blinded him on the, the road to Damascus. Um, so he, he was brought to, was it, it wasn't, he was a student of Gamaliel, right? Mm, um, sounds right? As a Pharisee. And then he went to whose house in the book of Acts? Oh, Ananias. Is that right? Yes. Okay. To the house of Ananias and Ananias worried that Paul is going to kill him when he's Saul at the time, because all the Christians in Jerusalem are terrified of the man because all he does is persecute and, and kill Christians who, who profess the name of Christ. Well, he's warned in a dream that Saul is coming to you and he's he's now praying. Um, so he's he's led as a blind man who's been stricken blind as this amazing brand plucked out of the fire for the cause of the church and redemptive history. And he's, he's taught in the ways of holiness and the true faith. He spends, as I understand it, three years being right, in Arabia, right? Yeah, re-educated. But you know, it's fascinating. It, it, 
God didn't sit there and say, oh, man, I need to find somebody who has no baggage, no background, this blank slate that I can train properly. Because that's what a lot of people sit there. Oh, that, that guy's Roman Catholic. He, he's got some baggage. You can't. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Get that retraining. And you can even bring something to the table. Oh, I think Paul brought things to the table. Uh, we, I mean, for example, we know that he is familiar enough with the Stoics and the Epicureans, for example. And, and so it, it's not like he was completely ignorant of his culture. Right. But you can't – here's the deal. Uh, somebody put it this way to me once, and I think it's completely true. The fact is if you're going to be ignorant of all of those vain philosophies and ideologies, then those, those ideologies and vain philosophies that you are most ignorant of will probably be the ones that have the most influence on you. Well said. Yeah, those are the ideologies and philosophies that are most likely to take us captive, arguably, because we're not aware of what to watch out for. Really, I want to thank you both. Thank you, Bobby and Joseph, for joining me on this episode of the podcast. And... I look forward to doing this again soon. I don't know quite when we will. Maybe we'll try again here in a week and we'll see how that goes. We'll play it by ear. But next episode, I'd love to talk with you guys when next we have a chance to record, uh, talk more about some of the specific hurdles that we were touching on here at the tail end of this episode. But for everybody listening, if you want to go check out The Reformed Conservative, please do. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Also, check out Berkirkian. That is Joseph's substack. You can subscribe. And when he writes at Berkirkian, you'll get the email updates right to your inbox. The Reformed Conservative has a Facebook page. You can go and join if you would like to be part of the conversation there. By all means, check it out. And do keep an eye out for... Refcon Press, The Christian Philosophy of Science was just recently published. It is out now, and you can check it out. You can get a copy. I would highly encourage you to read it, study it, give it to somebody you know and love. But that's all the time we've got for this episode. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, everyone. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.